Good morning. It's all right. Good morning. I'm having a good morning. I hope you are. Right? This has been an um, incredible, incredible time to walk through John with the church family. My name is Kendrick, and I'm the, the lead pastor here at Calvary Church, and it is awesome to be able to worship with you. It's even more awesome to be able to open up God's Word and just study that with our church family. So we are going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to be looking at the gospel of John this week. This gospel is so rich. Uh, Pastor Tim and I, we've been just talking about it this week. This is one of the gospels. They say, hey, if somebody's new to the faith, if somebody's just trying to figure it out, give them the gospel of John and it will help them. We have spent hours and hours looking at John and learning more and more and more and more about our Savior, and this is an incredible passage. Uh, last week, or incredible gospel, right? And we're going to look at a, chapter 6 today. You can turn your Bibles there. Last week, Pastor Tim looked at chapter 5, where Jesus taught who he was, right? That he was fully divine, which means he has final authority. He is a hundred percent sovereign over everything and one of the questions that Tim presented to us is that he has the final say in giving life and issuing justice and when we hear that when we hear that this man this God this man named Jesus has the authority to give us life or take our life our ears should perk up and we should want to know about this man we should want to know more about him, and we should say, well, why, is, why did he come? Why is he here? What is he here to do? Is he here to give life or to, to give judgment? And we should, that question should be burning in our hearts. And as we read through Scripture, God answers that question time and time and time and time again, right? He even sent his son Jesus to show us the answer, yet sometimes, like children at Christmas, we get distracted from the gift because we get focused on the box and if you have kids you have all been there even if you don't have kids you have seen kids who do this right where the parent goes out and gets the perfect gift for the child whether it be a dollhouse maybe it's like a backyard slide you put it before the kid what's he do or she she tears open the package opens up the box takes what's ever inside, sets it to the side, and climbs in the box. Right? All that stuff was just wasting time. And then about 15 minutes later, that box is now the center of the world's greatest fort. And where is the actual gift? On a pile somewhere in the living room underneath the tree. And church, I'm going to be really honest with you as I was reading this passage that we're going to be covering today, as I was preparing for this lesson, as I worked through this passage, I was convinced that I've spent a lot of my time playing with the box without realizing the beauty of the gift that was inside. Now, unfortunately, I know I'm not the only one. Right? I've read commentaries on this passage, and I know that there's a lot of other people that are getting distracted by the, the, the box, getting distracted by the wrapping and completely ignoring the gift. Today we're going to talk about some pretty amazing things. We're going to talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're also going to read about Jesus walking on the water. And we know from Matthew's account of that story that that's the same time that Peter got out and walked on the water, walked towards Jesus. 
These are incredible acts that Jesus did that demonstrated who he was. And I don't know if you know this, besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only account that is recorded in all four Gospels. It is the only miracle that is repeated in every gospel. That by itself makes it a pretty significant event, right? This is something that was burned in the the minds of those who saw it. It is a big deal, an important part of Jesus' ministry here on earth. Both of these topics, the the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, they have had entire sermon series dedicated to them. You could fill libraries with books written about them. But as we read John, we see that John uses these events as illustrations. That John uses these as this packing that is to be unwrapped and it's to reveal the true gift of Jesus. In this passage, John records the teaching of Jesus directly following these events. And in this teaching, Jesus helps us to understand these events and why they should lead us to believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we will have life. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at this teaching that that Jesus did at this time. And this week, we're going to look at just the beginning of Jesus' teaching on why he came. And then next week, we're going to look at how he accomplished his purpose, how he accomplished the reason that he came. So as I said, we're going to be in chapter 6. We're going to begin in chapter 6. As I mentioned before, these are significant events. We're going to read them. I'm going to begin in um, John chapter 6, verse 1, and I'm going to read through the feeding of the 5,000, and I'll continue to where Jesus walks on water, and then I'll stop and give a little bit of context right before we get into the teaching of Jesus. Verse 1 begins. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled up twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet Who is to come into the world? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea 
began rough, became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And on the next day, the crowd that, maintained on the, that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. As I had mentioned before, so much has been written about these two events that I just wanted to read them together because sometimes when we hear those accounts, we get confused between what the Bible said and maybe what some author assumed or maybe what some pastor thought. So I just wanted to start that we start with the Word of God, right? This is the sole authority. What this says is what we teach. So I wanted to start there so we're all on the same page. We all know that these events have been broken down and analyzed to the smallest of details. There's a lot of good research. There's a lot of biblical and theological research and theories that go into these stories. They ask the question, were there 5,000 or 15,000 people? What was the age of the boy, and was that significant to the feeding? What does it mean that he had barley bread, and what type of fish did he pass out? And lots of people start to come up with theories about the significance of these things. Or maybe even the significance about how far did Jesus walk on the water? How tall were the waves that he walked across? What was Jesus doing as his disciples were struggling on the sea as he was on the hill praying? And church, I just want to make sure that we understand this, that sometimes we get so fixated on the event, we get so fixated on maybe the wrapping paper or the box that we lose complete sight of what is the intent. Why is this included in Scripture? Because if we're really honest, as we read through Scripture, Jesus does a lot of amazing things, right? He heals people with a single touch. He commands legions with a single word, right? He shushes the storms, and they obey. I can't even shush my daughter's guinea pig. (laughs) He rises people from the dead, right? That's pretty amazing stuff as we look through Scripture, But if we're not careful, we'll miss what these things are supposed to do, what these things are supposed to point us towards. And John tells us in the scripture, I write of these signs so that you will believe, right, that Jesus is the Christ. And that these signs point us to who Jesus is, the Son of God. Church, don't miss the true gift because we're too busy looking at the amazing package, right? Jesus is wrapping the things that Jesus does, his signs. They are greater than anything we have ever seen. But the truth is they are nothing compared to Jesus himself. And John tells us about these signs so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. And after these 
two events in the following verses. John records the teaching of Jesus who uses these signs, these miracles, who uses these really significant events as illustrations to point to him as the Christ, to point to him as the Savior, to point us to the truth of who he is. The day after feeding 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people, right, 5,000 men, Jesus goes to Capernaum. And this entire chapter that we're going to be looking at today takes place in Galilee. This is Jesus' home turf. This is where he belongs. But what makes this significant, right? This is where he comes from, but what makes this significant? This is the only teaching in all of the Gospel of John that takes place in Jesus' hometown. Right? This area is primarily, primarily made up of peasants. Right? They live hand to mouth. Their time and thoughts are mostly consumed by their daily needs of food and making a livelihood and surviving. This is significantly different than the crowds down south, than the crowds in Jerusalem where most of Jesus' teachings take place. Right? Down south, the people are much more concerned with the, the theoretical issues of prophecy, of fulfillment of scripture, the law, the theological impact of what Jesus is claiming on not just their daily needs, but their entire lives, their entire world view. It talked about being Passover. We know this is a year after Jesus cleansed the temple. And those from Jerusalem are still wrestling with the impacts of his actions on their lives. A year later, they're still wrestling with the claims that Jesus made and what does this mean and how does this affect us. Many are afraid to go to him because every time they go to him, he kind of treats them like they're stupid, right? Like, you guys are the leaders and you don't know this? And so as they wrestle, because they're going to come up with the perfect defense, and it's been a year. But here in Galilee yesterday, yesterday, Jesus did a miracle. He fed them. He gave them all the food that they wanted. And today, they're searching all over the place for him. Right? We want to go see this man. We want to go find Jesus. And they find him. He's in Capernaum. He's in a synagogue. There's some debate on if Jesus went to the synagogue and he was teaching at the time, or if he was simply going there and being part of worship. Whatever the case, we know that somebody asked him a question. And that's not uncommon in the first century in the Jewish temples to ask the rabbi, especially if he's there, to ask him a a question. So that dialogue is not unusual. And we see in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then as you start 26, it says, Jesus answered them. But not really. Right, if you read the scripture, he never answers the question that they asked with their mouths. Right, if he was going to ask that question, he would say, oh, I got here last night. Right, and just move on. But he goes deeper. He goes to the question in their hearts. Men, take note of this. When your wife asks you, how does this look? <laughs> right? There's something more deeper than what's coming off her mouth. The truth is, is if Melissa wanted to know how something looked on her, she wouldn't come to me. She would go to Selah, right? If she wanted a real fashion opinion, she doesn't come to me, right? But she asked this question to me because she wants to know that she's still connected to me. She wants to know that I still care about her. She wants to know that I think she's beautiful inside and outside, right? When she asked me that question, I don't even have to look at what she's wearing because I just know she is beautiful because I see her heart. 
Right? I don't have to look. I get in trouble. She says, just look, and I'm not falling for that trap. Right? <laughs> Sailor, come here. Mom needs to talk to you. But we see in this passage that Jesus skips the spoken question, and he addresses the question in their hearts. He knows that they don't care about when he came over as much as they care about knowing when Jesus is going to have his next Oprah giveaway. Right? Just yesterday he said, hey, everybody, look under your grass pads. There's food for you. Right? And so now they're trying to find him. They want more from him. They want to see miracles. What else, Jesus, do you have for me? And I want you to look at how Jesus answers them. Right? Jesus answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And it's so powerful that our Lord, our Savior, our Jesus, by asking them a question, can totally expose their hearts. Right? Their hearts were not set on the things of God. Their hearts were set on themselves. They had created this, this own idea of who was coming to save them, of what the Messiah, what the Savior would look like, and they had this picture in their mind. Right? In verse 15, it tells us that they believed he would be a political king. Right? They were about to come and take him by force, to make him a king. They were waiting for this man. Right? We also know that they believed by verse 26 that this Savior would meet their material needs. You are seeking me. Jesus tells them, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Right? You're, you're circling material goods here. And then we see that they believed that they would be able to achieve salvation through their religious works. By asking Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Look at Jesus' answer. Then Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus just looks at him and says, you guys are doing this all wrong. This is all wrong. You want to be doing the work of God? Believe in me. You want to be doing the work of God? Believe in Jesus. Right, unfortunately today, the Galileans have not gone out of date. They have not faded away. They're still present in every single one of our churches and in every single one of our groups. Right, these are Christians who struggle to truly believe the Jesus of the Bible, but have no trouble believing in a Jesus that they created. Just as the Galileans believe that Jesus would be political, we believe that Jesus is defined by our politics. I don't need to waste a second on this issue if you just look back over the last several years. I don't mean to burst some of your bubbles, but Jesus is not a Democrat and Jesus is not a Republican. Stop saying that stupid stuff. Not in this church, right? But here's, the, here's something you need to pay attention to, right? If your politics are your standard for truth, if you say my politics are my absolute truth, they're not politics, they're religion, Right? Those aren't politics. You've now taken away Jesus, you've taken away the authority of Scripture, and you've made, script, you've made politics your authority. Church, that's a problem. It's like when Joshua ran into the commander of the Lord's army and he asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Do you remember what his answer was? No. Right? He looked and said, no. 
I am the commander of the Lord's army, right? I don't join you. I don't join sides. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. You guys join me or you work against me. That's not how it works. So the real question that we need to be asking is, are you for God or against God? Do you believe in Jesus more than your politics? Do you look at your politics through the lens of Jesus or do you look at Jesus through the lens of your politics? That's the question we need to be asking. Right? And just as the Galileans believed that Jesus would meet their material needs, some believe that Jesus is defined by their wealth and health. They call themselves like practical Christians who live in the real world and believe things like this, that Jesus only helps those who help themselves. That contradicts Scripture. Right? That goes against the very nature of the gospel message. But they use it as an explanation to satisfy their materialistic needs, to not give to the church, to put their wants above ministry opportunities. Several years ago, there was a Christian in my small group, and she was the daughter of a church elder. Right? We're adults. And she told me that God only wants you to give your tithe after you have everything you want because God wants you to be happy above everything else. What? I still have not found that verse in here. Man, I have looked, but that is a man-made God. You will not find that in Scripture. The world will hate you. You'll have to carry your cross. Remember what God told Ananias about Paul? I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. I don't see the health and wealth anywhere in Scripture. Do you believe that joy is found in your things or do you believe that joy is found in Jesus? Right? Do we use Jesus to get things? Or is Jesus the thing we're chasing? And finally, just as they, the Galileans, believed that Jesus would be found in their works, we believe that we can earn Jesus by our works. Right? We believe in our works more than Jesus. We believe in ourselves. We say, hey, what must I do? I hear this question all the time. What, what must I do? How many Sundays a month do I have to go to church? Right? How much do I have to give? How many hours do I have to serve? How many Bible study merit badges do I have to earn? Right? This is not Boy Scouts. Right? This is about a relationship with Jesus. Right? When we're in a relationship, like if you're talking to your spouse, you don't look at them and say, like, oh, how much do I have to do? How many times do I have to spend with you? How, much, how, how often do we have to go on a date? Right? Those aren't things that you ask. Jesus says this. He says, just believe in him who he sent. Let me tell you something. When you believe in Jesus and he transforms you, when he renews your mind, you don't ask questions like how many, how much, how often anymore. You just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what can I do? Jesus, what else can I do? And it's simple. Jesus says, just believe in me as your Savior. Right? Not the things of this world, not the things that will gather dust and be eaten by moss, not in your own works. Just believe in me. Right? That is the work of God, that you believe in me. And because they're paying attention and they're sheep, they followed up with another question. I love this. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? Remember the context of this story. Yesterday, Jesus fed 5,000, at least 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Last night, Jesus somehow got across the Sea of Galilee without a boat in a storm that was wrecking boats on the sea. And they're like, Jesus, what can you do for us? What have you done for me lately? And now they ask, what sign are you going to do this so that we can believe in you? Moses gave our fathers manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to do? Like, forget about the five loaves of bread and five, 10, 15, 20,000 people yesterday. Jesus is God, so he's more patient than us. And he responds to this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And pay attention to what Jesus said here. Moses gave you nothing. It was God who gave it to you. That was a gift from God. And now God has given you a greater gift. Right? God has given you this bread of life where you're never going to thirst or you're never going to hunger. Remember, this is a couple years into Jesus' ministry. They have heard him teach with the authority greater than any scribe that they've heard before. They have seen him demonstrate his authority over the physical world and the spiritual world. Yet they're still looking at the box. Right? God has given them a gift and they are still looking at this box and the unwrapped gift of life is standing before them. And as the kids roll around in the wrapping paper looking for more and the parents keep putting the gift in front of the children and they keep ignoring the gift. They keep clicking on the box to see how sturdy it is. They keep thinking about the endless possibilities that that box could be used for the children's dolls even though there is a dollhouse in the pile on the corner. And Jesus just looks at them and Jesus responds in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Jesus looks at him and says, okay, we're done. I am the bread of life. Let's break this down for a third grader. I am the bread of life, but you do not receive me. Right? Jesus is the gift from God. Jesus is the gift that we are to receive. Jesus says, I am the bread of life this is the first of the distinctive i am sayings of this gospel and we'll look at these as we go through where jesus says i am i am and this is in direct reference to god's response when moses asked god what should i call you and god responds to moses i am who i am i am who i am and jesus says i am Right? And in Jesus' answer, he knew he was directing them to Moses and the talk that he had with God. And he was hoping to lift up their eyes from their material bread and from their earthly kingdoms and to start looking at the spiritual realities that Jesus was talking about. Now, Jesus takes them from their focus on bread, showing them that manna was only intended to point backwards in time to when they were rescued by God. And then it was to point forward in time to the rescue by Jesus, the true bread of life the one gift from god which will rescue all who receive this gift for all of eternity 
As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon reminds us, he was looking at this passage and he said this, the coming here, when Jesus says, come here and taste of this bread, you shall not hunger. When Jesus says, come here, this is what he meant. He meant that this coming is performed by desire, by prayer, by consent, by trust, and by obedience. Right? To receive Jesus means that we are to feast. Right? We are to fill ourselves with the goodness and grace of Jesus at all times. Right? And we do this by our daily times with God, by time in prayer, by time in the word. We do this with our time in private worship. We do this by our time in corporate worship. Right? You must feast, feast on Jesus. And somebody just asked me as I was looking at this passage, so what do you mean by feast? It's like when you got your favorite pizza in front of you and you don't let your family eat it, right? You say there's leftovers in the refrigerator and you just shove it. Well, maybe you don't. I do. I just shove it, right? I got two boys and a teenage boy. I have to protect my food, right? And I feast on it. And that's what we are to do when we receive God. We're not to say, oh, this is beautiful and put it on the shelf. We're supposed to say, oh, this is beautiful and learn everything about it. Our whole lives are focused on feasting on Jesus and his word. And as you receive Jesus, right, you, you love God. Your heart for God is stirred. As you receive Jesus, you try to live like Jesus. Right, as you receive Jesus, you share life with others because you want them to feast on Jesus with you. Right, when you receive Jesus as your savior, you'll be completely satisfied. And here's the best part. It'll be just like the loaves and the fish from the day before. You will never run out. You will fill countless baskets with God's grace and his mercy and his goodness. And you can give that to everybody around you and those baskets will remain full. And finally, in this passage that we're gonna look at today, Jesus teaches that you can trust Jesus for all eternity. He actually says that's the will of God. Like Jesus is doing the will of God. And because God and Jesus are sovereign, what they want, what they say, what they do is factual. Nobody can change their minds. Nobody can tell them not to do it. Nobody can stop them. And God's will is that you will trust Jesus. If you look at verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but rise it up and on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will rise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. Right? Everyone who sees the Son, right? everyone who believes in him, everyone who receives him will have eternal life. It's a promise. Right? This is the wonderful truth from all, from everybody who is given to Jesus by the Father, who the Father goes, hey, I'm gonna bring you to Jesus. I'm gonna give you to Jesus. Our salvation is secured for all time. Right? Jesus will never lose us. Jesus will never forsake us. Jesus will never allow anybody to snatch us from his hand. We are Jesus's for all of eternity. 
And just as those who were healed in the desert as they looked upon the, the bronze serpent that Moses had, Moses lifted it up, and those who look upon the Son, those who look upon Jesus, will be healed, will be restored, will be redeemed. Those who gaze upon the Son become new creations. Scripture tells us that the old has passed away and the new one has come. And we know that that new one that has come will last for all of eternity. We will be new creations as we worship with our Father in heaven. And it's in this passage that Jesus alludes to this case of a person who is deep in distress and in poverty. And he comes to a noble man's house and in order to get relief, the, the person appears. And the owner, far from treating the, the, the poor man with, with harshness, he welcomes him. He receives him kindly. He gives him the supplies that he needs. He gives him supplies that he wants. Just as Jesus does for all of those who are given to him by the Father for all of eternity. He will satisfy us completely for all of eternity. Passages in Psalms says if we delight ourselves in the Lord, right, if we make him our focus, if we pursue the Lord with everything we got, the promise of Scripture says we will get the desires of our heart, right? As the Lord is the focus of our heart, and the more we receive him, the more of him we will get. And as our Redeemer, our Savior Jesus, meets us wherever we are. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in our shame. He meets us in our, our hurt. He meets us in our hopelessness. And he reaches out to us and he says, It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. He is our Redeemer he is our rescuer, and he is our savior. That is who he establishes himself as he begins teaching in the synagogue. And they have these questions. That's what they want to figure out. Who are you? And in this teaching, Jesus says, I'm your savior. I, I am the savior of this world. And then he continues to teach. We're going to look at this next week about how he accomplished that work. We're going to finish chapter 6. But today in this beginning, part of six, this is what you need to know is that Jesus came to give life. Right? Jesus came to us to give life and with confidence we can believe that he is our savior. That's why he came, to give life. Right? With confidence we can receive him as our savior. We don't have to think, well, maybe there's something better. With confidence we can feast on him knowing there is one person who can save us and it is him and with confidence we can trust in him as our savior he is completely sovereign and if this is the first time that you are trusting jesus as your savior this morning you say oh i want to trust jesus i want to receive him and we would love to celebrate with you after the service when the, the worship team is going to come up i'll be standing over there i'd love to see you i might be out in the lobby come talk to me pastor tim's right in the back go talk to pastor tim we would love to celebrate this time with you. You can also put it on your connection card. Just indicate it on your connection card. You, you got a hot date for lunch today. You don't want to talk to me. But hey, I'd love to talk to you about giving my life to Jesus. And I will reach out to you and we will talk about what it means to believe and receive and trust in Jesus as our Savior. But see, if you've received Jesus 
and you've been trusting him for a long time as your savior, I wanna encourage you today to just look at your heart, to, to look at your life, and I want you to set, a, set aside sometime this week and receive a little more of God's greatest gift of Jesus. Right? This week, focus on the gift. Read one more chapter in his word. Sing one more song in worship. Spend one more minute in prayer. Man, learn one more thing about the greatest gift that God has ever given you, Jesus. Learn one more thing about your Savior. He is your Savior. He's also the Savior of the world. Learn something new about him this week. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of John. We thank you for sending your Son. Lord, and we would just pray as we seek him that you would make him known to us in, in ways we couldn't even understand or ways we couldn't even plan for. Lord, we just pray this week as we read chapter six on our own, as we go into our private time of study, that you would reveal new things about him. Lord, as we look at how he accomplished the task of coming and being our savior, we pray that you would stir our affections for him more and more and more each day. Lord, we just pray that as we go about our lives, we would be amazed by the wrapping, but we would fall in love with the gift of your son. Lord, we love you.